Today, I wanted to talk about another Zach in the Bible who also was seeking Jesus, came seeking who this Jesus was. So if you want to turn to Luke 19, many of you will, will recognize this story. It's a well-known Bible story. It's the story of Zach or Zacchaeus. Luke 19, 1 to 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowds, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be in the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So I want to ask four questions this morning as we look at this story of Zacchaeus. Very simply, who was Zacchaeus? What did he do? What did Jesus do? And what was Zacchaeus' response? So what do we know about this guy, Zac, Zacchaeus? Well, we know firstly, he was a wealthy man. He was a tax collector. And um, there was a lot of corruption in this area. In fact, he was a Jew who was collecting taxes off his own people. And so he was, he was hated by the Jews. He was seen as a collaborator uh, with the Romans there. And um, we, know, we know he was rich essentially because he would, have, he would have been conning people out of money. Okay? We know he was a little guy. Okay? He says he was small in stature. Had a picture of Danny DeVito there. When I think of Zacchaeus, I think of Danny DeVito. So we know he was little, he was small in stature. We know that they call him a sinner, okay? Actually, being a tax collector, being a collaborator, um, they were seen as unclean, okay? They were seen as unclean people. He was seen as a sinner. In fact, because of the work that he did, because he was probably conning people out of lots of money, because uh, he, was, he was grabbing at this money, he would have been recognized, and, and the same word tax collector and sinner are the same words, actually. Uh, in, 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 in Jewish there. Um, so he would have been, he would have been recognizing this. He would have been a lonely guy. He would have been despised by many. Um, and maybe even his family would have also been categorized in this sense because of him. And so essentially he was willing to go to people and make sure he had the, he had the backing of the Roman army. Okay. If he wanted anything to happen, he had their backing and he could just send in the heavies, you know, you're not paying up? Well, I'll send in the Roman army to make sure because actually these taxes are going to Caesar uh, and half's going to me as well. Um, and so he was able to do this. Um, and it reminds me a little bit, you know, what was this guy like? When we think about mafia films, you remember these protection brackets that happened and, and um, they go into shops and it isn't a case of them requesting, can I have protection? The mafia would go in and say, do you know what? You're going to pay for protection because your protection needs to be from us, but you're going to pay us to protect you. 
Um, and so there was this very hostile environment. And Zacchaeus would have had this access to the Roman army that would have made him uh, very feared. He would, have been, he would have had a lot of authority in the sense of having that Roman backing. And, you know, as we read these stories, and, and my sons, they, they love superhero films. Um, and it's all about goodies and baddies. And so often we watch these films and we always put ourselves in the shoes of the goodies, don't we? And when we look at the baddies, we always think, well, you know, they're bad people. They just, they get what they deserve, obviously. But we never associate ourselves particularly with the bad guys. It's always with the good guys. Have you noticed that? There's something in our nature that wants to just associate with the good guys. And yet, actually, when we look at um, these stories, we, and the Bible basically tells us that we are the bad guys. Okay? When we look at Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus is a picture of, of us. It's a picture of what we're like. Our natural instinct of nature is one of greed. It's one of wanting to take off others for ourselves. And um, the Bible actually tells us that we're not good people. Our very inherent nature is not good. And I don't know if you've heard the story of the boy and the bicycle, but it's Christmas Eve. And um, this boy is lying in bed and he decides, I really, really, really want a bicycle. So he goes downstairs to the living room and he gets on his knees and he prays and he says, Lord, Lord, I really, 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 really want a bicycle. And I promise I'm going to be perfect for the next month if you'll just give me a bicycle. So he gets back off his knees and he goes back upstairs to bed and he lies in bed and he starts thinking about this next month and he starts thinking, Man, what does this mean? This means at school I've got to start listening to my teachers. I can't be cheeky. I'm going to have to do all the homework that I'm being told to do. And I can't fight with anybody at school. He suddenly gets out of bed and he goes back down the stairs and he gets on his knees and he goes, Lord, Lord, I really, 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 really want a bicycle. I promise that I'll be perfect for the next week. And he gets back up off his knees and he goes back up to his bed and he lies in his bed and he starts thinking about the next week. And he starts thinking about his home life and he starts thinking, man, this means when my mum tells me I've got to go and tidy my room, I've got to go tidy my room. When, when I've got to load the dishwasher, I'm going to have to do it. When she says to stop playing with my phone at the table, I'm going to have to put it down. And so he gets back up out of his bed and he goes downstairs into the living room and he says, Lord, Lord, I really, 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 really want a bicycle. I promise I'll be perfect for the next day. And so he gets back up into his bed. He starts thinking about the next day, and it's Christmas Day. He starts thinking, it means I've got to be really nice to my sister. No bickering at the table and no fighting over the presents. And so he gets up again, and he puts his clothes on. And he goes out of the house, and he walks across the street, and he walks into this little chapel, and he goes up to the altar. And he picks up this little statue of Mary and he puts it in his coat. And he goes back over to his house, goes upstairs, up to his room, opens up his cupboard, puts Mary in the cupboard. He goes back down to the living room and he gets down on his knees and he says, Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again. (laughs) Do you know, (laughs) this is just a story, a picture of. The fact that inherently we're not good, okay? None of us are good. We genuinely are basically not good people. None of us in this room, including myself. Um, The Bible tells us that we have this inherent nature that wants to look after ourselves. 
okay, that actually when it comes to trying to be good, we can't be in and of ourselves. It's actually impossible. Even to go a day, the thought of going a day, this boy got it right. To be perfect for a day in his own strength, he realized was impossible. So there's the thing, who's Zacchaeus? He's a sinner, okay? So what did he do? Zacchaeus, we find out, did two things. Two things that are actual massive cultural taboos. So he ran. It says he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see Jesus. And in Middle Eastern culture, men are obviously dressed in a different attire. Okay? And for a Middle Eastern man, a wealthy man, to, to run, firstly, is just not um, seen as appropriate. It's why the story of the prodigal son, when the father runs out to meet his son, is shocking. Because Middle Eastern men do not run. You just don't run. It's a total social taboo. You, you just don't do it. And the second thing he did, obviously, was climbing a tree. Now, even, I think even in our culture, a wealthy, a wealthy man climbing a tree, it's not appropriate behavior. It would make you look and go, what is he doing? Unless he's a tree surgeon, of course. And um, we find out he did this, didn't he? Because he was actually desperate to see Jesus. He was a man who had a lot of wealth and a lot of power. And yet there seems to be something in his life that is not satisfying him. He's lacking something. And I don't know how you feel about life today. You might think about your life. You think, my life's great. I don't have any problems. You know, you might think, we go to a great uni. I have a great job. I have a great family. I'm not in need of anything. You know, my body's healthy. Why, do, why, why would I need God? He's just a crutch for the weak. That's a response we often get. And actually, as I spoke to people on Allison Road, there was this mentality that was there. I'm fit. I'm healthy. Life's good. What on earth would I need God for? It would be like telling somebody to go to the doctor. And they go to the doctor. They sit there in a the doctor's chair. And the doctor says, right, I want you to take these pills. Because I think they'll be good for you. And of course, naturally, you'd say, well, what, what, what do you mean? You want me to take these pills? What's, there's nothing wrong with me. Why am I taking these pills? I've got no symptoms. Why would I take pills when there's no symptoms? Why do I need them? And that would be the right question to ask. But the problem I think we have in our culture and our society is that we need to help not to confuse what physical contentment is and spiritual contentment. There's a few quotes here from some famous people who, in the world's eyes, are successful. They have everything that you could possibly want. They have money. They have fame. They have even their health. So Robbie Williams, he has this lyric in his songs. He says, I just want to feel real love in a life ever after. There's a hole in my soul. You can see it in my face. It's a real big place. This is Robbie. Robbie Williams. Thanks, Ian. He wants to feel... He wants to feel real love. There's a hole in his soul. 
And he's feeling that. And then you've got the other spectrum. You've got royalty. Prince Charles. He says this. He says, for all the advances of science, there remains deep in the soul a persistent and unconscious anxiety that something is missing. Something's missing. This is a guy who can go anywhere in the world and he's welcomed in to the highest courts, to the finest foods, to anything he goes to. And finally, one of my favorite artists is Jamiroquai, JK. And one of his um, songs says, Can't you see there's a hole? I won't sing this one, Pete, just for you. Can't you see there's a hole in my soul and I'm losing control? There's a hole in his soul. And, do you know, as I said, these guys have all the material wealth that money can offer. But there's something here they're talking about in the spiritual. They're searching for. There's a spiritual dissatisfaction in their life. And, do you know, the problem is we so often worship created things that actually truly cannot satisfy rather than the creator God who truly satisfies. And, you know, we've even seen recently so many successful, famous people over the last few years taking their lives out of sadness, out of a dissatisfaction in their life, sometimes out of mental health as well. But actually, there's something that these guys are recognizing. They've reached the pinnacle. And they're still dissatisfied in life. There's nothing more they can grab hold of. It still doesn't satisfy. And I think when we look at Zacchaeus here, we can say this guy, he was wealthy, but I can guarantee you he was definitely lonely. And you know, the reason he ran and he climbed this tree is, is different to maybe what you may have heard. Okay, There's a Middle Eastern scholar who would suggest actually, because most people would actually say it's just because he was a little guy, he couldn't see over the crowds. But actually, that's not really the true reason. The littleness has to do with climbing the sycamore tree. But the fact that he wouldn't go into the crowd was simply because he was absolutely hated. He actually feared his own life by going into the crowds. He was scared that he was going to get stabbed literally in the back. Because in a crowd, anyone can do it without being found out. And so the reason he didn't get involved in the crowd, he didn't want to go in there to see Jesus because he feared for his own life. And what we find is he went and he climbed a sycamore tree. Now, sycamore trees, they have low-lying branches and big leaves. So actually, it's a tree he could climb because he was probably, because of his height, he probably couldn't climb any other tree. So he climbed a sycamore tree. And we find out, actually, from Middle Eastern scholars that sycamore trees weren't just everywhere in these villages. There was actually um, laws that prevented certain trees being in certain areas. Sycamore trees were actually only allowed to be located on the edge of towns. They weren't allowed in the center. They were actually seen as unclean. And so we actually know from Middle Eastern scholars that this tree that he climbed was on the edge of the town. So he ran to this tree that he could climb, and he climbed up this tree because he was hoping to see Jesus as he passed through the town. So this is what Zacchaeus did. Thirdly, we want to ask, what did Jesus do? So we know from verse 1, he entered Jericho, and it says he was passing through. Now, just to give you a bit of context of what's going on in Jesus' life at this time, he's actually very close to death. 
And he's passing through the town actually on his way to Jerusalem. And he's heading there for Passover. He's obviously going to sit down with family, with friends. He's going to eat a lamb. And they're going to remind themselves over how God brought people out of slavery. How he passed over their houses sacrificially with the blood of the lamb. And so he's on his way to Jerusalem to do this. Obviously, bearing in mind, he knows he's on his way to death. He's on his way to be the sacrificial lamb. And we find out from Zacchaeus, he ran ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. So what we find out is Jesus is actually exiting the town at this point, this town of Jericho. And he's not staying. He's heading through it. And um, what we know about this is by this point in Jesus' life, he's become well-known. He's become a little bit like a superstar. Okay? The Israel nation, lots of them are starting to believe that this guy is the Messiah. They believe, actually, he is going to release them from slavery. That actually the Romans who are oppressing them, he's come to take them down. And somehow, he's going to take them out. And so, he's coming through this town and they've got this superstar, this Messiah, coming through their town. And so they want him to stay. They want to listen to his teaching. They want to be inspired by him. They want this guy who's well-known now, who's been doing lots of miracles, who's been quoting scripture, to stay in their town. But he's intent on passing through the town. And um, they would have been offering him hospitality. And yet, actually, we find out um, that Jesus calls Zacchaeus down from the tree. And this is an interesting one because... How did Jesus know his name? And there are lots of people out there who would teach, you know, he actually was called by God to go into this town to, to invite Zacchaeus to tea. But actually, this guy, Kenneth Bailey, who's this Middle Eastern scholar, gives a more appropriate picture of what's happened. Helping you to understand where the tree is helps you to understand the story. So here goes. The people have followed Jesus through the town. They're still following him. They're trying to persuade him to stay. Okay. He gets to the edge of the town. People see Zacchaeus up the tree, this tax collector, but they're in a crowd. So what do we do in a crowd? We get a bit bolshy. We start calling him, ah, he shamed himself. He's up the tree. This tax collector who's hated is up a tree. And so the crowd start turning against Zacchaeus. Jesus is leaving, exiting the town, but actually he Here's the crowds starting to get very violent towards this man in the tree, Zacchaeus. And so what does he do? Jesus intervenes. He knows his name because people are calling Zacchaeus. This isn't some kind of prophetic word that he's had or some insight. Literally, the crowd are angry at him. They're hostile. They want to take him down. He shamed himself by being up in the tree and Jesus steps in. And you know the problem is Jesus, he's expected to support the oppressed, isn't he? Just in the last scene, we see this scene of this blind man. And um, it says this, it says, the blind man, he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those were, who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and he commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, 
what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately his, he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. This is Jesus standing up for those who are sick, those who are oppressed, those who are marginalized. And actually, when we come to Zacchaeus, this guy who has been against the Jewish people, who's been abusing them for years by taking their money, we expect, Kenneth Bailey says, we expect him maybe to make a speech more like this. Zacchaeus, you're a collaborator. You're an oppressor of these good people. You know, you've drained the economic lifeblood of your people and you've given it to the imperialists. You've betrayed your country and your gods. This community's hatred of you is fully justified. Now, let me tell you, you must quit your job, repent, journey to Jerusalem for ceremonial purification, return to Jericho and apply yourself to keeping the law. If and only if you're willing to, to do these things, then on my next trip to Jericho, I will enter your newly purified house and offer my congratulations. This would have delighted the town of Jericho, wouldn't it? This speech from Jesus. And this is probably what they would have expected him to have said to a man, a sinner like Zacchaeus. But instead, what does he do? Instead, signal to the town that he's not staying around. He changes his mind on the outskirts of the town. And he goes and invites himself into the house of the sinner, the tax collector. Now, Middle Eastern culture, trying to get our heads around this is really important. That's why I keep coming back to understanding what the culture is. Because for us, there's a divide in understanding what's going on in the story. They would have recognized and understood it straight away, but we need to understand what was going on in Middle Eastern culture. Middle Eastern culture says that the community itself selects the form of hospitality, not the guests. So Jesus coming into the town doesn't choose who he goes to. The town selects who he goes to. And they choose a host who can provide the level of hospitality that will bring honor to the whole community. That person that they send, the person who's going to represent the town, to this honored guest. So the town are upset. He's gone against all of the culture that this town would have. No guest coming through any town selects his own host. And certainly that guest does never invite themselves to the despised sinner of the town, this collaborator. So what did Jesus do? He's essentially shifted the crowd's hostility towards Zacchaeus to himself. This was a massively costly act of love. He stands in the way of their anger. And, you know, he knows that this is going to cause the crowd to become angry with him instead. And, you know, he doesn't have to do this, does he? After all, this is Zacchaeus, the guy who has swindled the town out of much money. The guy who has used the Roman army to intimidate, and yet Jesus sees him, and he loves him. And he puts his own life at risk to protect him. That's what Jesus does right here in this story. And you know, it's not the first time that he's done this. We see it at many points in the Gospels. 
We see him stepping up, taking on the anger of a crowd who want a woman to be stoned, who's committed adultery. We see him standing up for a widow who gives money to the church and him challenging the church saying, or the synagogue saying, why on earth is this woman having to put money? She should be receiving from you. I just want to say, he doesn't, he doesn't ever endorse the actions of Zacchaeus or the woman caught in adultery. But he doesn't ostracize them either. Okay? He loves them. Finally, how did Zacchaeus respond? So we know by now that Zacchaeus has received this very costly love from Jesus. And this love, we're going to see, is going to change him forever. He's never going to be the same again. And there is something in this story that we glimpse that we very rarely get to see in a lot of the stories in the Gospels. So we must take great note. Because what we actually get to see for Zacchaeus is his response to this costly love. You know, when we look at the prodigal son, we don't get to see what the prodigal son does the morning after the banquet, do we? As he's thrown this lavish party and welcome back. We actually don't even get to see how the, whether the older son will join in the banquet as he steps out. We don't get to see what radical changes can be expected in the lifestyle of the wounded man who was rescued by the good Samaritan. We don't see those changes. Yet here in the story of Zacchaeus, we're privileged to get to see his response and what happens. I want to tell you he responds out of the depth of who he is. And he pledges off his own back to clean up his financial act with this community. No one tells him that he has to. He has to do this. No one tries to explain to him that because Jesus has now come, listen, here's a copy of the Ten Commandments. You must follow these. Check them and get yourself reformed. This costly love that he's received from Jesus that he has received will be his standard. And operating from that standard, he starts. Not from where others are at, not from other people's standards. And what does he do? He publicly commits himself to showing costly love to the community that he's harmed. And you know the word repent? To repent literally means to go in the other direction. It's to do a 360. And to follow Jesus, the Bible tells us that we are to repent of our sins and believe in him. And I believe that what we see in Zacchaeus is true repentance. He turns full circle in his mindset here. And I want to make a note to us as the church when it comes to understanding the Zacchaeus story. I think so often as the church, we get into the habit of telling people, what that change should look like and how they should now be behaving. We put expectations on them straight away to see this or that. And actually, what we see here is the presence of Jesus. The very presence of Jesus and God was the thing that transformed Zacchaeus' actions. That's what caused him to give his money back, to repay and to repay fourfold. So finally, Jesus says this. He says, today salvation has come to this house. And you know, if salvation's come to the house, who's bought it? Who's bought that salvation? 
to Zacchaeus' house. We know it's the main actor here. It's Jesus. He took salvation to Zacchaeus' house. And it was at great cost. A famous theologian Bonhoeffer says, there's no such thing as cheap grace. It's only costly grace. And it's costly for the one who offers it and for the one who receives it. And you know, when we think about the Zacchaeus story as the church, we have so often focused on the fact that Jesus went to his house as the key point in this story. Jesus went to his house. But what we learn here as we understand Middle Eastern culture is that the most powerful thing here that happens is right in the middle of the story. The thing that's going to shock the culture is right in the middle of the story. And it's that Jesus took on the anger of the crowd onto himself. He took it away from Zacchaeus, who was being threatened, and he took it on himself. And you know, there's one occasion that I haven't mentioned yet. I'm sure many of you can think about what that is, where Jesus takes on the full anger and wrath of God the Father. That anger that was meant for you and I. He took it on himself on the cross. And the Bible tells us, as I mentioned earlier, it tells us that we are all sinners. We've all fallen short. That there's an inherent nature that will always choose to look after self. And it tells us that the punishment or the wages, the cost for this sin, this looking after self, is death. This was the cost. And we know that God is a holy God. And that sin angers him. So that sin that you and I have committed has to be dealt with. It can't just be left on the sideline. And so we see here again, Jesus stepping in and willfully taking on the full anger and wrath of God onto himself as he gets nailed to the cross for our sins. And you know, what he did for Zacchaeus was costly. You know, the crowd turned against him. But what he did for you and I, it cost him everything. It cost him his life. He gave up everything. He suffered greatly at the hands of the Roman army. He suffered greatly by being separated from his father for the first time in all eternity. Because he had to take on the punishments, the anger, the wrath. His blood had to be shed to pay for that. And we find out that Jesus came. He came to rescue sinners, to rescue the wretched. Not the healthy folk. Those, he's come for those who recognize that they're lost and are searching for a savior. I just want to say, if you don't know him today, I want to let you know that Jesus wants to invite himself into your life today. He wants to affirm the love that he has for you in spite of all the ugly sin issues that are in our lives. And he wants to change us from the inside out by spending time loving us. And just you like Zacchaeus, you have a choice. 
this morning to accept his invitation or to decline it. I want to say many on the streets over the last few days, on Allerton Road, many chose to accept him, accept his invitation of love, of freedom, of acceptance. So I'm going to ask us to stand. I'm going to ask the, the worship to come back up. We're going to just sing a song. And during the song, if you don't know Jesus, then I'd love you to come. I'm going to, I'm going to go to the back. I'd love to pray with you. Okay? I'd love to pray that you can accept that invitation from Jesus into your life. But I think, obviously, as we've looked at the cost that Jesus took on for you and I, when we worship God, when we're passionate for him, the reason we're calling out his name is because of what he's done for us. Because of the great costs he took on for us. Because he stood in the way of the anger and wrath of God where we should be dead for eternity. He's given us life. And he's given us his grace. Yeah? Can't think of anything better to worship him for.